Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Market Show. It's Thursday, the 11th of August, as we record. Uh, Joined in the studio, Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good to have you back on the podcast. And over the line, we've got Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. All right. How are you, John? Very well, thank you. And then Julian Hoffman as well. Hi, Julian. Hello there, John. Good to have you guys back. And then, of course, we have our host, Dan Jones. What's coming up on today's show, Dan? Hi, John. Yeah, we've got a couple of subjects today. First, we are looking at, uh, we're still in the middle of results season, of course, so we're looking at some potential canaries in the coal mine, what the guidance from the latest results might tell us or might not tell us about what's coming down the line later this year. And then we are discussing this week's cover feature, which is on electrification and the hidden winners from that process. It's not just electric car manufacturers, not that all of those do well anyway. So yeah, we'll be talking about that too. Lovely stuff. Before we get there, as normal, a quick roundup from the week of news. First up, finally, some better news on inflation from the US. CPI data showed inflation rose 8.5% year on year in July. That's below analysts' predictions of 8.7%. Investor reaction saw the S&P 500 up 2% on Wednesday and the Nasdaq up nearly 3%. The Nasdaq has now gained 20% since its mid-June lows. Few companies' lines... Uh, in a trading update, house builder Bellway revealed it had delivered a record number of homes, 11,198, in the year to the end of July. The news comes as UK house prices continue to rise. Estate agency Savills is predicting total house price growth for 2022 to be 7.5%, followed by a 1% fall in 2023. Elsewhere, Deliveroo fell to a deeper pre-tax loss of £147 million, up from £95 million last time around. The online food delivery company was hit by higher rider and staff costs. Orders, however, were up by 10% to 161 million. Mining company BHP have made a $5.8 billion buyout bid of Australian copper miner OZ Minerals. The offer came after a sell-off in metals markets sent the smaller company's share price down a third since April. German industrial group Siemens has reported its first quarterly loss in nearly 12 years. It came after it wound down its 170-year-old operation in Russia and the write-down of its spun-off energy business. And Disney have defied concerns about the streaming industry by adding 14.4 million subscribers to its Disney Plus service in the last quarter. It now boasts 221 million paying customers. That's slightly ahead of Netflix now. And finally, Entain shares rose by nearly 6% as the sports betting and gaming business revealed a new European acquisition, Croatian betting company Supersport, and said that cash profits for the full year would be in line with consensus analyst forecasts. That's all from me. Over to you, Dan. Thanks, John. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, actually, you mentioned Disney, which is maybe indicative of what we're about to talk about, which is, you know, first half good, second half maybe not so good, as uh, Sven Goran Eriksson used to say, England <laughs> football manager. You know, insofar as we've got a lot of company results still coming out, and uh, like Disney, you know, things have been pretty good in the first half, but but they're facing more challenges in the second half, I think. I'm going to persist with this analogy, but Disney is, you know, it's <laughs> introducing an ad tier and it's raising prices, I think, by a third as well, so... Clearly, they see some um, cause for concern. And in UK PLC, it's quite similar, I think. You know, obviously, the first half has, has been relatively benign uh, relative to what might be coming down the track. So a lot of investors have been looking very closely at guidance in these interim results and what uh, companies are saying about the outlook for 
the second half and maybe further along than that. We had, as an example, we spoke about recruiters a couple of weeks ago. We had Page Group this week. Gemma, I know you covered those results. And that, that guidance or just a, the hint of some guidance was enough to, to cause some concern there. Yeah, so at first glance, they looked strong as ever, really, because the recruiters have been having quite a bumper time of it of late because of the, the situation in the jobs market. But there was just a slight hint of, of sourness in the, in the results, I would say. So the company noted a slight slowing in time to hire in some of its markets in July. Um, and some analysts have suggested maybe it's just the summer period, lots of people are on holiday, so naturally things slow down a bit. But others suspect it might indicate a bit of a, a slowing more generally for recruiters and perhaps perhaps the wider economy as well. Julian, I know you um, have some thoughts as well about you know these these canaries in the coal mine as they as they may or may not prove. Well, it was, it was very interesting when you mentioned uh, when John mentioned Savile's prediction for the year being seven and a half percent because that's exactly the figure that approved mortgages have fallen by according to the bank according to the FCA recently. There seems to be something further down the line that's going slightly awry in certain sectors and and it, it isn't really about past performance uh, it's always about uh, how things are, are panning out as the as the half progresses and a lot of it seems to be either related to sectors that are very close to the the heartbeat to the economy so the the recruiters are a good example of that they you know as soon as <clears throat> businesses spend money they they tend to benefit very quickly or you you've got these macro themes coming through where uh, interest rates are having a, a detrimental uh, long-term effects on on people's decisions you know whether it's buying a, a house or even things like credit card debt stuff is uh, is going to be affected by that so it's a it's a very mixed picture but it isn't uniform and and, and I think we spoke about it before that uh, that there is a lot of caution as well in the way that people are presenting the their outlook for the year which uh, it could be indicative of how nervous people are but also it could be that they don't want to uh, incur the the market's wrath at this point so that yes, that was, so we've we've seen a few examples of that. I mean, certainly Page Group and WBP are the are the, the prime ones for it. WPP was an interesting one, wasn't it? In so far as it was the 2023 guidance or, or lack thereof, which seemed to scare people more than the rest of this year. So you know, obviously markets are always forward looking, but in some cases that that outlook is being shifted even further out from from this year to to next year, and people are getting concerned about that. It's whenever the budgets come through. I think that's when, you know, for, for those mm. kind of companies, uh, you know, they'll agree the budget sometime in in the spring. And if they're not really sure how that season goes, then the following year is going to be bad, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's, they're as cyclical as that, really. Yeah. I took the liberty when we were discussing this earlier in the week of, you know, taking a look at some of the, the guidance uh, for pretty much all the companies we feature uh, in print this week, which is a, a fair whack. And, you know, by and large, actually, a lot of them are still, you know, holding the line. A lot of them are are saying, you know, either unchanged or in some cases, uh, you know, raising guidance, which has obviously been rewarded this week in, in a few cases with a share price reaction. I think analyst figures for the FTSE 350, our colleague Alex Newman sent through some data earlier as well, also still painting a relatively positive picture, you know, whether this is kind of a, a wily coyote kind of, you know, treading on air before plunging down, we, uh, we don't know. But uh, it doesn't seem too bad at the moment. No, you're right. I, I mean, the FTSE 350, I mean, there are two factors at play, isn't it? That one, they're always going to be, the majority of those companies are going to be earning their their, their earnings in dollars. So the dollar is strengthened so much that you're, you know, you're already sitting on a 10% gain compared with the start of the year. 
Um, the one to watch probably is whether the the broader in index, the one that's more tied tied to the UK economy, um, is is proves to be more cyclical. Cyclical that might be include quite a few AIM stocks as well in that in in that definition. So there is that split in the index. So you know. The, the thing about the analysts' um, forecast is that they will be uh, they will be overwhelmingly weighted to the the larger mid uh, the larger cap companies within the sector within the index, and that tends to skew how you see the the coverage I think as well. So you, there is you have to tread that you have to sort of treat that with a certain amount of of, of caution mm. <laughs> as, you, as you do with your all analyst. Uh... Uh, calls. Um, I suppose there's another nuance here in that because the first half has been so good for some companies, uh, even maintaining guidance for the year might be deemed in some cases to be a cautionary sign insofar as, you know, otherwise they might be upgrading. And we did see that elsewhere this week, Gemma. Yes. I mean, again, Page Group is the most obvious um, example because I think analysts at HSBC um, said because guidance had been maintained, it actually implied a slowdown in the second half of about 13% compared with the previous year. So even though you immediately read it and think, oh, great, market guidance is still being upheld, there could be a bit more room for wobbles than you immediately suspect. But I wanted to add, there are some interesting examples of companies where actually the first half hasn't been great and they're pinning their hopes on the second half. So industrial manufacturers are one of them. There's a company called Rotalk, which make valves and flow control systems, which obviously was hit by supply chain issues, inflation, energy prices, and it's holding out that the second half of the year will be will be a bit easier in that regard. So it's worth watching out for those types of companies as well. Yeah. Mark, what are your, your thoughts on the the uh, running the rule over the, the interim results and the outlook? Well, Dan, I haven't done any analysis um, on the figures thus far, but uh, I guess one theme that's come through quite strongly is that the companies that have been able to uh, pass through their price rises are the ones that have been most successful. I mean, that's fairly uh, obvious. But the point is, we come into the second half, there must be a limit to uh, to that cost pass through. And that may um, be a factor going forward as well. Can I, can I just um, go to your point about uh, WR Page Group, rather, is that What's interesting, I think, is that the fear of unemployment rather than necessarily unemployment itself, that could have the real negative impacts uh, on the economy. Um, in other words, it's it's every bit as causal as it is uh, symptomatic. For, for one thing, it, it generally depresses uh, wage growth, and we've seen that up to now. I mean, uh, pay bargaining power in real terms is, is, well, it's been pretty much uh, non-existent for a lot of uh, industries out there. Uh, and the, the knock-on effects can be quite profound as, as well, because um, if, if you get a situation where uh, saving rates increase and real wages are falling, a slump is almost inevitable then. But why, why would um, savings rise? Well, it, it, if a fear of unemployment becomes greater, uh, households may increase precautionary savings um so yeah i mean it, it is that is that it's perceptions as much as as much as uh, reality as far as the jobs market go i i guess one area of support uh, is that there is still a bit of a skills mit, uh, mismatch across the economy and that might um that might sustain it for a while longer i mean the it is it's an extraordinary uh, market i mean i've never seen a, a, a jobs market quite like it in my lifetime yeah there is that that um 
unusual element to it, isn't there? As we we have spoken about in recent weeks too, about you know that that is the big question of you know whether whether employment does hold up and whether whether it can. I mean, the similar situation in the U.S., which is still adding jobs at a healthy clip and. It's a strange situation where, as John said earlier, we have good news about inflation uh, being, you know, eight point something percent, and that's a, that's a positive. But but that that was potentially a, a sign. Well, let's hope it's a sign of things to come in terms of uh, inflation having peaked there, and maybe after all that that uh, balancing act of uh, maintaining strong employment and and not having an economy that either overheats or is pushed into recession can be achieved. But you know, that's a, that's probably too much to ask for at this stage. We shall see. I suppose the other thing with the with the results to say is that we will have more on this next week in the uh, magazine. We are going to be doing a bit more analysis of uh, the guidance and uh, the way that companies have reported their own outlooks for the second half of the year. So do look out for that next week. But we should turn to uh, this week's issue again and our cover story, which uh, this week is on electrification and the hidden winners from that process. As I said at the top, you know, electrification is not just about uh, hybrid vehicles, electric cars. There's all manner of knock-on effects for all kinds of different industries. Gemma, you wrote the piece. Talk a little bit about your sort of thinking there and what, what you're looking at. Yeah, so I um, I approached it thinking there's been huge amounts of coverage of electric car companies, battery makers, renewable projects, but not that much about the second-hand beneficiaries, I suppose. Um, so I wanted to find a few different sectors which might have this, um, I suppose, might have major changes coming, perhaps a little bit further down the line than, for example, the automotive industry. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I found an interesting selection of industries uh, for readers readers to consider. I suppose, you know, we won't go into too much detail about the specific companies, just because we want to save a little bit for the, uh, you know, the... Uh the always joyous sensation of picking up the magazine. But, you know, this is an interesting area as well, isn't it, insofar as it's not just, you know, the, the second-hand beneficiaries, but it's also, you know, identified a couple of companies, you know, who are advising businesses on what to do and how to improve their own processes, even if they're not, you know, in an industry producing electric products, as it were. Yeah, so I think as more and more sectors try and go electric, so, for example, industrial manufacturers are wanting to electrify their processes over the next 10 or 20 years, they're going to need some help doing so. So there seem to have been some quite clever moves by consultancies that once specialised in diesel engines and were complete petrol heads into the world of green consulting um, and helping companies manage the transition, basically. I suppose it's, it's always easier to uh, transition if you are a consultancy rather than well, uh, using right. these processes. So, uh, yeah, they've obviously got ahead of the curve by seamlessly pivoting to uh to these uh processes but as as you say there it is is about you know it's about companies you know looking at their whole not just the output but the way they produce uh their components and things like that as well you know there's a lot of manufacturers looking to to improve their own energy efficiency let alone the energy efficiency of the the, the products themselves yeah and i think if you are a company that manufactures components you're probably facing some quite tough tough conversations over the next few years because by its very nature, an electric car doesn't have as much stuff as a normal traditional petrol engine car. Um, so the actual amount of products that you need to go to make a car has been massively reduced. So certain manufacturers are having to radically rethink their business models and what they actually create for their customers. When I so had a brief look at this, there does seem to be a sense that as is always the case, I suppose, with you know, the optimistic uh, management teams who do seem to insist that a lot of these components will be 
uh, still be present in electric uh, vehicles, and I'm sure a lot of them will, but equally there is some uh, adaptation going to be required there. There's also sort of a bound up in this is a change really in potentially in how suppliers and manufacturers interact and, and manufacturers interact with distributors as well, which is quite interesting, I think. Yeah, so there seems to be a growing tension between companies that make cars and companies that supply car companies with the products they need because I think because of the inflationary pressures, um, all sides of the market have been feeling the squeeze, but component manufacturers are feeling pretty hard done by. There seems to be this argument that the car makers are taking a bigger chunk of their profits than they were before and trying to take greater control of, of the supply chain. So that will be quite an interesting, not battle, but perhaps mild conflict to watch if you're um, interested in that sector. I suppose that that is an example, you know, the, the speculation in, in some cases that, you know, that as automakers shift their, their businesses, they, you know, will look to bring more stuff in-house or maybe use some of the workers who were previously employed in these processes for, you know, internal combustion engines, use them as a, you know, um, to start making components themselves, that kind of thing. So there's a, there's a risk with all these things. When there's a lot of change, obviously there's opportunity, but there's always a risk that someone comes in and eats your lunch at that time and, and takes it away from you. And and the the other aspect is the um, distribution, you know, the, the dealerships or that kind of relationship could change as well. Yes. So just as car makers seem to be trying to take control of the supply chain, they also seem quite keen uh, to control the actual uh, retail experience for customers, I suppose. So Tesla's the most obvious example where it wants to have this direct relationship with consumers. But I think other car companies are, have seen that model and think, oh, actually, you know, that could help our margins. Um, do we need the the middlemen, I suppose, of, of car dealerships? So I think that will be an interesting interesting area to watch. Yeah, I think Hyundai, uh, another uh, firm that's been doing this, and they've been doing it um, for quite some time now. I mean, what, what's interesting to me, what seems interesting to me about this is that the transition itself isn't necessarily linked to sort of transition to electric motoring or hybrid motoring, because a lot of these changes were in play, um, you know, prior to the period in which EV sales started to pick up dramatically. And it, and it ex also extends, you, you talked about our marketing and the retail angle there, which is uh, completely valid, but car financing and the way that we actually, oh, the way that some of us no longer own cars, but lease them or, um, or different sales, um, different sales models. Uh, that, that's been a feature of the industry too. Um, the the parts are interesting uh, because uh, I'm, I was just thinking about three um, D printing. That's going to be, that technology is going to expand as a result of this as well. Uh, and the only I say the as Gemma rightfully pointed out, there are fewer parts that go into an electric vehicle. You don't have a carburetor and car and and most of the cooling systems aren't in uh, electric vehicles too but they do require more semiconductors and we've seen uh, an example of what happens when supply doesn't uh, keep up with demand in that area yeah it's interesting you mentioned 3d printing which we don't sort of discuss particularly in the piece but we have discussed i think uh, in the past and and you, you do see a couple of mentions now in you know in companies talking about you know supply chain issues being resolved with 3d printing Sadly, you can't yet, I believe, 3D print a semiconductor, but, uh, you know, there are some of those those aspects there. 
I, I suppose as well, the wider point, as you say, some of these changes have been in train for some time, but but when you get the kind of the big shift we're seeing now in terms of production focus towards electric vehicles, it, it gives a gives more of a, not cover, but more of an opportunity to really push through with some of those changes more forcefully, I think, doesn't it? The other, the other question, I suppose, with, with all this, you know, we, as I say, we do talk about more than um, car manufacturing in the piece, and, and there are, uh, uh, you know, related industries and all kinds of uh, electrification processes going on. But you know, the question is, I suppose, do, do we have the, the capacity for that, this kind of big change? And you know, there's always questions about the grid, the grid and, you know, its capacity there and how it can sustain the, these big shifts. I mean, the short answer to that is no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they've been predicting this for 30 years. There have been sort of various reports coming out that saying that the physical infrastructure of, of our electric grid goes back to the 1960s. It needs massive upgrading. And uh, I mean, the prime example of that is when apparently you can't build any more in West London because uh, the capacity there is completely um, uh, maxed out. Um, but I mean, the only way that you can solve that is by by years and years of investment in in upgrading upgrading everything i mean that's basically what it's going to take but um yeah so I mean, it's, it's not a simple process or, or cheap i think it would be fair to say and the time scales involved feel very long i think certain reports i've been reading about the difficulties of connecting renewables projects with the main grid they're talking about delays of up to 10 years. And when you think how quickly companies are going to want to move once they've started the transition, that's going to cause some some major holdups, I would have thought. Well, it does, it does, I mean, you can measure it in decades. I mean, the, but the problem is that, for example, in 2010, they, so the, government, the government has been traditionally rubbish in this country on, on um, energy policy generally. But in, in 2010, that one of the reasons they gave for not expanding nuclear power in certain areas was that uh, it would take until 2022 for it to come online. And uh, basically, here we are. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I saw that this week. That was that was Nick Clegg, I think, wasn't it, saying that? Uh, I think 20- it was Ed Navy, actually, who was en- Energy Minister back in 2010. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, it, so you can see that, that it's easy to put off a decision uh, because at the time it feels like it's a long way away. But, uh, you know, we get to it and we're in the middle of an energy crisis. Yep, would have been ideal. Yeah, I think, you know, it was only a couple of years ago or even less, you know, we were all talking about, will we have enough uh, charging points for electric vehicles? But really the problems seem to run deeper and are more structural than, you know, just putting in a few extra points or a lot of extra points. I suppose the final the final point on this, final question maybe for you, Gemma, is just in terms of how rapid do, do we think these kind of shifts will be? You know, there are some companies taking baby steps, some, you know, obviously speaking quite, aggressively and confidently about the process. I think some of the charts we have in there on, you know, manufacturers shifts in there, the proportion of their processes that they aim to have electrified, you know, getting to a decent level within the next five, 10 years, but they're not really accelerating much further over the next 10, 15. So maybe they're taking a cautious view or, you know, trying to beat expectations as with the guidance we discussed earlier. How quick is this happening? Um, I think it probably varies a lot depending specifically what you do but I imagine one major issue for all types of companies are inflation and energy prices so trying to radically transform your business model whilst all that's kicking off isn't isn't really appealing prospect. I think as well um, if you're a for example a component manufacturer that serves trucks you'll probably be thinking well I've got a bit more time because electric trucks are probably uh, I'd say five or ten years away. Whereas if you're mainly serving electric cars, you're thinking, well, I'm going to have to get moving, get moving a bit quicker. 
But yeah, I imagine given all the turmoil in in recent years, since the start of COVID, I suppose, um, companies have been a bit reluctant to start introducing major changes um, to how they run. I suppose, you know, on one level, it's easy for us to sit here and say, but, you know, the period of transformation is a good time to try and transform your business. But in practice, yeah, when you struggle to get supply chains working, you struggle, struggle to, to get a lot of things working, it can be difficult to, to enact that change, can't it? I, I wouldn't be surprised as well as if we see a, um, a watering down in some of these targets too, um, specifically in relation to uh, hybrid vehicles, because I, I don't know off the top of my head, I think it was by 2035, the government was hoping to phase out all internal combustion engines and have a pure EV network then. But there's pressures now to say, keep that hybrid um, situation going because obviously it's far more flexible and it's probably a better reflection of where we are in terms of uh, the infrastructure deficit. Yeah, that, that, as we said, that infrastructure is an issue, even if it would I mean the, the car figures as of about, I think, November last year, that seemed to be the real step change in shift towards EVs, you know, after many years of, of talk and some relatively limited interest. But yes, given what's been going on right now and and various changes, you know, cost of living and 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 energy pressures as well. It'll be uh, fascinating to see how how those trends carry on or how they may change. Uh, we will obviously be keeping a close eye on that as well. Uh, but that does bring us to the end today, unfortunately. Thank you uh, to Gemma and to Mark and to Julian and to John, as ever. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Markets show. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>